0: As we come to the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray. Well, our Father, we do stand on every promise of your word. And we pray that this morning you would use your word to feed your church. Strengthen us and help us, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, our reading this morning is from Psalm 45. And that's on page 471 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 45, page 471. (coughs) To the choir master, according to Lilies a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendour and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Their peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. At your right hand stands the Queen, in gold of Ophir. Hear, O oh daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold in many-coloured robes she has led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king in place of your fathers shall be your sons you will make them princes in all the earth i will cause your name to be remembered in all generations therefore nations will praise you forever and ever Uh, it's estimated that a billion people tuned in to watch the wedding of prince william and kate back in 2011 and as many as two billion people to the wedding of prince harry and Meghan last year both royal weddings were huge global events that captured the attention of the world but of those billions of people how many do you think tuned in to see william or harry i reckon not many And the press coverage of the build up to the weddings told us everything that we needed to know about who was the centre of attention. It wasn't the princes, the grooms. It was the brides, Kate and Meghan. And that's not just true of royal weddings. The bride is traditionally the centrepiece of the wedding. That was true of Zach and Kate a few weeks ago. Uh, It's true of every marriage in this room. And it would be a brave groom who would argue otherwise. So did you notice what was different about the royal wedding described in Psalm 45? It's not the bride who is the center of attention, but the groom. Psalm 45 is all about the king. It's written for the king in praise of the king. And so the Psalmist is then like the best man and Psalm 45 is the, uh, is the best man's speech. He said there are two really important differences to the sort of best man speeches that we're used to hearing. Firstly, it's not spoken, it's sung. just look at the, the text above verse one. It's a love song. And secondly, there's absolutely no attempt to humiliate the groom as has become the tradition. The best man has nothing bad to say about the groom because there is nothing bad to say. Verse 1 tells us the source of this praise. Has it been forced on the psalmist by the king? Is he being paid to say nice things? No. Verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The psalmist loves the king. The song starts in his heart it moves to his tongue and then onto his pen. And his heart is so full of love for the groom, in fact, that it can no longer contain his feelings. And so he can't help but speak about what he loves. He simply can't keep all the good things that he has to say about the groom inside. The psalmist finds that, that love is the great loosener of the tongue. The mouth speaks about what the heart loves. And the reason for this is there in verse two. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. This is a psalm about a beautiful king, a king whose beauty makes him the centrepiece of his wedding and so fills the heart of his friend, his best man, that it bubbles up and over into a love song like this. And as the psalmist tells us the story of how we got to this wedding day, he shows us three ways the king is beautiful. His words, his war, and his rule. Let's start with his words and just look at the second half of verse two. Grace is poured upon your lips. Now, if you wanted help to make yourself more beautiful, then a a sensible place a good place to start might be the beauty counter at John Lewis now, I don't have much experience of using the beauty counter at John Lewis but I imagine that they'd at least be able to make you look good and smell good but if you went to the beauty counter in John Lewis and you asked for help to make your words more beautiful well you get some pretty odd looks And that's because beauty is so often reduced to being all about the external, all about external appearance. But the psalmist isn't interested in what the king looks like. It doesn't matter. Instead, the focus of verse 2 is on the king's inward beauty. As one commentator on this passage has said, this is all about lips, not looks. Lips, not looks. It not the King's appearance that's important it's his words and that's because what he says and how he says it tells us what the king is like on the inside there's a really important connection between the heart and the mouth between the heart and the tongue the mouth reveals the state of the heart so if the heart is bad then the mouth is bad. If the heart is good, then the mouth is good. The mouth is the spokesperson of the heart. And this means that the man with grace upon his lips doesn't just have grace upon his lips. The grace doesn't stop at his mouth. The man with grace upon his lips is a man of grace. He's gracious from top to bottom, inside and out, He's full of grace. He's gracious in every fibre of his, of his being. And we can imagine, therefore, that his, his words are not self-serving, but are kind and loving and generous and sincere and trustworthy and truthful and right, to name just a few. And not just his words, which are the external expression of who he is, but his inner thoughts and his workings are also kind and loving and generous and sincere and truthful and trustworthy and right, and so on. The groom is a man of grace. Which brings us to the first of three blessings that are just kind of interwoven through this passage, indicated by the use of the word therefore. So three blessings, three rewards. So at the end of at verse one, Uh, End verse 2, sorry. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Because the king is a man of grace, God has blessed him forever. So this king has beautiful words. But a king is not a king without a kingdom. Which brings us to the king's beautiful war in verses 3 to 5. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendour and majesty, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. (coughs) The peoples fall under you. Now there are two ways to get a kingdom. Firstly, you can inherit it or you can fight for it. Now this king was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth and given his kingdom. He has to fight for it. And verse 3 enables us to see the king preparing for battle. He straps his sword on his thigh and it must have been quite a sight because of, and we can tell it because of the words that the psalmist is using. It's words of he described it as the mighty one in splendor, majesty. These are powerful words. But unlike some kings, uh, this display of power is not just for show. Now, the king is not fighting vicariously through others while safely tucked behind the lines. No, he rides out at the head of his army. He leads the charge. He fights the good fight himself. And we can see what he's fighting for in verse four. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Because he is a man of grace, he is qualified to fight for these things, to fight for this kingdom. But what he's fighting for also tells us that this kingdom needs to be fought for. If he needs to fight for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, then the very existence of these things must be under threat. And if they are under threat, then that's bad news for the people in this kingdom. So we need to understand that a kingdom without truth and meekness and righteousness is a terrible place to live. It's a place where the rulers, those in authority, oppress and exploit and take advantage of their people. And so the fact that this king fights for these things is good news for the people of this kingdom. He is fighting for them to free them from the tyranny and evil which has gripped their lives and their land. And this king does not fail. Let's look at verse five. His arrows are sharp in the heart of his enemies and the people fall under him. This king fights a beautiful war. But having secured his kingdom, the king ascends to his throne. Just look at verses 6 and 7. It's a beautiful rule. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. See, verse 6 tells us that the king is not just blessed by God, but he is God, and he has an everlasting kingdom. And This means that the victory he won is not temporary, but permanent. His enemies were not just destroyed for a time, but for all time. And Just as his character is reflected in the way he fights, now it's reflected in how he rules. So, the psalmist draws our attention to the king's scepter. Now, the scepter is a, a, a rod or a staff that is the very symbol of the king's power and his authority, a, a visual representation of what his kingdom stands for. And it's significant, therefore, that this king's scepter is a scepter of uprightness, which means that his rule is perfectly upright. It's only right, never wrong. It's only good never bad. His rule is full of truth and meekness and righteousness. And verse 7 adds to this. It shows us that there is no moral ambiguity or uncertainty in his rule. He loves what is right and he hates what is wicked. So this king's rule is beautiful. So the psalmist shows us three ways the psalmist Psalm shows three ways that the king is beautiful. And that progression from from words to war to rule is important. Because being a man of grace shapes what he fights for and why and how he rules. Which brings us to the second blessing, Uh, there at the um, second half of verse 7. The second blessing. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Comes in response to the manner of the man of grace's war and rule. He is anointed as God's forever king, and he is prepared for marriage. And that's what we see in verses seven to nine. He's anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. His robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. And at your right hand stands the queen in the gold of Ophir. So the psalmist, even here, continues to show us the king's beauty. He has beautiful robes, a beautiful fragrance. It's a beautiful setting of ivory palaces. It's beautiful music fills the air. There's a beautiful wedding party of daughters of kings and what's most likely the queen mother at his right hand. And there is a beautiful attitude joy and gladness. And so after all this, the king is ready for his bride. So now the guests begin to redirect their gaze from the front of the church to the back as they await the entrance of the bride. Except not just yet. that is coming, but it's down in verse 13, not in verse 10. See, just as we expect the bride to walk up the aisle we find the bride almost inexplicably delaying. And so the psalmist, the groom's greatest admirer and champion, says, Hear, O oh daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Listen, consider carefully. So, verse 10, that tells us what the issue is. The psalmist has to say, Forget your people and your father's house. And the issue is her family. Perhaps they aren't ready to let their little girl go, to let her leave their family and join another, to leave her home and her country. It's a stark reminder that at the heart of marriage is a leaving and cleaving, and that's not easy. Even when the man at the end of the aisle is the most beautiful of kings. So the psalmist's solution is to draw her attention not to what she's losing, but to what she's gaining by walking down the aisle. Just look at verses 11 and 12. The king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the richest of the people. he tells her, you will be loved by this beautiful king. You will be led by this beautiful king. And you will receive a status and influence from this beautiful king that will elevate you above even the richest of Israel's neighbors. And so as we come to verse 13, the bride is being prepared to walk up the aisle, which brings us to one final way that we see the king's beauty in his bride. In verses 13 to 15. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. We see here her echoes of the king's preparation. She wears beautiful robes. She has the same beautiful attitude, a joy and gladness that comes from knowing who she's marrying. And obviously she has the same beautiful surroundings. You see, in marriage, the beautiful king shares his beauty with his bride. And then in verses 16 and 17, the psalmist ends with the fruit of this beautiful marriage and one final blessing, the everlasting praise of the nations which I think leads us to ask, who is the psalmist talking about? Who is this king? And at this point, we almost need a, a game of historical top trumps. You know how it works. Each card scores the characteristics or strengths of a particular footballer or superhero or car. And then the higher the score, the better the card and the more likely you are to trump the other cards you come up against. Now we don't want to trump we just want a match we know the characteristics of this king all we need to do is to compare them to every other king in history until we find a match As some have suggested the psalmist is writing about king solomon but we certainly can't attribute to him everything of which the psalmist speaks and so we move on to the next king and we compare their cards but they aren't a good match either And so we move on to the next king and we compare their cards and the same thing happens and the next king and the same thing happens again. See, one by one, we'd have to cross cross off every single earthly king until we get to Jesus Christ. Because it's it's him who's the object of the psalmist's love and affections and praise. See, as Isaiah tells us, he had no outward beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't defined by his looks, but by his beautiful words, words that were full of grace and forgiveness and compassion for the weak and the weary and the broken, the oppressed, for sinners just like you and me. Words that told us that Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. And so being a man of grace, he was qualified to go to war for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, and he willingly did so. He went to war with the enemies and oppressors of his people, the Pharisees, the earthly rulers, and ultimately he went to war with sin and death, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to set his people free. And having fought and won a beautiful war, he rose from the battlefield and ascended to his everlasting throne where he was given the name that is above every name, And crowned as the king of all kings to reign and rule his people and to await his rewards his precious bride the church a bride whose beauty comes not from herself but from her king who came from heaven to seek her to rescue her from the chains of sin and death to cleanse her with his precious blood and to clothe her in beautiful garments of his own righteousness So the beautiful king of Psalm 45 is not just any king. It's the king who is beyond compare. It's Jesus Christ, the king of all kings. So what then are we to do with this psalm? Well, the psalmist has done a remarkable thing. He has laid open his heart and he has told us not just who he loves, but why he loves. He has shown us the very root and cause of his affections, the beauty of King Jesus, the most handsome of the sons of men. And he's done this because he wants us to feel exactly the same way. He has sought to show us Jesus in all his beauty, to stir our hearts and our affections towards him so that we might also love him and desire him above anything or anyone else and experience the joy and the gladness that comes from living in his kingdom. So two things to say then as we close. If you're not yet a Christian, does what you know of Jesus Christ, perhaps from previous investigation or conversations, match the description the psalmist has given us? Is the beautiful king that we have been shown in this psalm, the king that you have chosen not to follow? Because if he isn't, and he doesn't match what we've seen today, then what you've read or been told about him has misrepresented him or sold him short. The Jesus Christ that Christians follow, the Jesus Christ we meet and know in the Bible is the beautiful King of Psalm 45. A man of beautiful character and beautiful actions And perhaps seeing the beauty of Jesus in who he is and what he has done for his people is the encouragement that you need to think again about this man, to take another look at the Bible and to reconsider following him as king. And if you are a Christian, well, the psalmist is clearly not inviting us to love Jesus for the first time, but he is showing us how to fan the flames of our affection for Christ. And this is particularly helpful for those times we're all familiar with, when our hearts feel cold or lukewarm, or when our affections are being divided and drawn away from Christ to love other things. Psalm 45 reminds us that the remedy is always to come and warm our hearts with the beauty of King Jesus, his words, his war, his rule, and ultimately and finally in his bride. See, as we behold and enjoy his beauty day by day, week by week in the scriptures. We can be confident that what happened to the psalmist will happen to us. Our hearts will be stirred and warmed and increasingly drawn to Christ alone. And they too will overflow with the same pleasing theme. For our words won't be able to be contained. And we will praise and worship the one who has captured and captivated our affections, Jesus Christ. The king of kings let's pray well heavenly father in this psalm you have graciously and wonderfully shown us the incomparable beauty of christ and it is our prayer that his beauty would capture our affections more and more that our hearts would be increasingly warmed by his beauty with the result that our lips would praise and worship our glorious king In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.